Naval College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Monday afternoon, October 4, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, concluding the discussion of the Babylonian and Biblical accounts of the flood and taking up the background of Abraham and the patriarchs. All right, now uh, the, the uh, uh, mechanical details of the flood partly resemble and partly differ. A thing about the birds and the dimensions and size of the ark, also the duration or length of the flight. This, however, doesn't matter too much. The Bible account is undoubtedly the true one. But uh, the real difference, the real bind here that makes it really impossible to, to hold seriously that the Bible account is, is drawn from and based on the Babylonian account is this theological and ethical or moral difference. A stream doesn't rise higher than its source. And the Babylonian stream is low, and the Bible is high here. And this, uh, this high view of things with these high theological and moral concepts could not have been barred from such a low-down source. It wouldn't work. You know, Princess Margaret of England was uh, called down by her older sister Elizabeth, now the Queen of England, who asked her where she learned that language that she was using. She said, at my mother's knee or some other low joint. Now, that, that was Princess Margaret. You know, learn language at a low joint and just talk like a prima ministerial student in Geneva College. This uh, doesn't happen. And so uh, the, the, the loftiness and purity of the Bible account is in sharp contrast to the obvious corruption and moral and theological debasement and confusion of the Babylonian account, and therefore it will not do to say that the higher was derived from the lower. So that is for that. Now, just to suppose a little bit, uh, Unger says the true account of the relationship is that uh, they both go back to a common source. How many people were saved alive in the ark? Mr. Harris, that's a question for you. Yeah, in the Bible uh, no, no, no. All right. Uh, anybody know for sure? <laughs> Mr. Mary. Hey, all right. There's Noah. These women don't have names. Noah and Mrs. Noah. Shem and Mrs. Shem. Ham and Mrs. Ham. Japheth and Mrs. Japheth. That's four couples and two generations. So eight people stayed alive in the ark. Now, from those, the world was repopulated. If there's anything the Bible makes clear, it is that the human race as a whole, was destroyed by the flood. There were no survivors except those in the ark. So the human race of today is derived from the survivors of the flood who were in the ark. Now, if you had been one of the um, passengers on the ark, do you think, Mr. if you could have forgotten that experience to the end of your day? You'd remember that. That would really be a conversation piece. I said, Mr. Nary, before class, that would be the bedtime story of all bedtime stories. To tell to your grandchildren, and they to theirs. And nobody could forget having been through a thing like that. Even the Babylonian story, the way it's written up, the, the, the awful mortal terror that those people went through, and how the whole sky got black, and the waves rolled, and the lightning flashed, and so forth, and uh, it struck mortal terror into them. They would never forget that. Uh, experiences and scenes like that. And that would explain how this story has lived. Now, the Babylonian isn't the only one, the only one Unger deals with. 
little book by Byron C. Nelson called The Deluge Story in Stone. The geology in this is not orthodox geology, but anyhow, he gives the tabulation of two dozen flood traditions in different parts of the world. Two dozen, 24. The story is found with various um, modifications in all parts of the world. Greenland, South America, Polynesia, um, Baltic area of Northern Europe, Lithuania, Scandinavia, China, ancient Egypt, Greece, India, and many others. He's got them blocked off in a graph of squares so you can see the, the points in which they agree with the Bible story and the points in which they differ. <clears throat> the Sumerian and Babylonian is by far the closest to the biblical narrative. And the others uh, differ somewhat as to a number of things. Uh, nearly all of them, though, have the destruction by water and a nucleus of people saved alive in a boat of, of some kind. One or two speak of a devastation by fire. But in all cases, humanity destroyed completely. Only a handful of survivors and a new beginning made from them. And this all over the world. Now, this is unexplainable. Skeptics and scoffers used to say these people, like the Eskimos, got these stories from missionaries that came and preached Christianity in the Bible to them. This is manifestly untrue. It can be proved. They knew these stories before they had any contact with missionaries or with the Bible. And uh, furthermore, <clears throat> if that's where they got it, their, their version of it would be much closer to what's in the Bible than what it really is. So they had these anyhow from ancient times. And uh, this indicates the survivors of the flood as the population began to increase the end, branched off and went in different directions. And this story was a part of their common heritage. They were all descended from the survivors of the flood, you see. And so wherever they went, India or South America, wherever they finally ended up, the story came with them. It's not surprising that those that went the greatest distances without written records for a long, long time, that the story got somewhat mixed up and distorted. This is what you would expect, like that parlor game where you talk around a circle and whisper something somebody here. And the Babylonian and Sumerian, very close to where the true story was preserved, that in the you know, tradition of the Hebrews, and very close to where the things really happened, you see. The lower Euphrates Valley is certainly where... Uh, this, this affair was, was first centered, is the nearest to the Bible account. And the Bible account itself, we have to say there's a factor of divine inspiration in here as well as mere human tradition. This has preserved it without the uh, all, uh, fantastic features like the gods biting each other's nose off, and, uh, more or less, and uh, this kind of thing. <clears throat> now, does that make sense? Therefore, as to the relation between the Bible account of the flood and the Babylonian, the, the most adequate answer to this is the two go back to a common source, ultimately to the survivors of the flood who climbed out of the ark. And we cannot trace it back that far, but this must be the explanation of this. This would also explain the existence of these ethnic or worldwide stories of a universal flood. And there, there are too many of these, and they are too close to each other, even though widely separated racially and, and geographically, too many, and they resemble each other too closely to call it coincidence. Therefore, it must go back to a common source. Now, before we leave the, the flood and go to the history of Abraham, any of you got any questions about the flood? When you get to heaven, you can, uh, Mr. Mr. Beatty, you can interview Noah on this, Mr. Denary. Yeah. He 
Yogamesh was a a king of a city. He was a, a traditional and mythical strongman like Hercules in the Greek mythology. Yogamesh is pictured getting his morning setting up exercises by getting two young lions in his fist and choking them. Like this. I don't recommend you to try this. If you ever do, they'll get a good dip on their neck so they can't turn around back to it. He choked a couple of young lions for his morning limbering up with his nerves and muscles. And um, he, uh, his best friend died, Enkidu, his best pal and friend died, and this was a terrible emotional shock to him. Here his friend lay and his body began to decay and so forth and he said, you know, I'm going to die like that and go back to clay and dust too. And this really devastated him and he left his kingship over this city in Mesopotamia and went on a long and wide journey to try to find the secret of immortality. And he had numerous adventures in what was then still a wild and, and scarcely populated part of the world. He went through forests and so forth, and he had him a time. And finally he met, according to this story, the Gilgamesh epic. This is the oldest literature, not the oldest writing, but the oldest literature of the Western world. Finally he met uh, the hero of the flood, the Babylonian Noah, who had become immortal. And he tells Gilgamesh the story of how he became immortal, and incidentally to this, he tells him the whole story of the flood. And the fullest form of the Babylonian story of the flood is found in this book called the Gilgamesh Epic. But it's just one part of that. The, the, whole, the, the, the theme of this book as a whole is Gilgamesh's search for immortality, which he didn't find, he didn't get. But anyhow, uh, incidentally to this, he interviews the, the hero of the Babylonian Noah long after the flood, who had been given the gift of immortality by the gods. And um, from him he gets this story, and that is where we get the fullest form outside the Bible of the story of the flood. That's that way. In Gilgamesh, the, the uh, accent is on the first and last syllable, and I couldn't find any book that told how to pronounce this word until I finally found it in the largest dictionary in the library. Not Gilgamesh, as some people have said, but uh, I've heard professors call it Gilgamesh, but it's Gilgamesh. It's a Babylonian word. Or right, anybody else got one on the flood? I heard uh, Joe told that uh, faculty senior banquet, I believe, or some such affair, a man uh, was a hero of the great Johnstown flood and had rescued uh, 20-some people from drowning at the time of the Johnstown flood. And ever after this, he was greatly honored and went around telling people he was the hero of the Johnstown flood. And finally he died and went to heaven, and even in heaven he was telling people he was the hero of the Johnstown flood. But he noticed somebody kind of following him around heaven and sort of snorting when he would say this, like that. And finally he asked one of the angels, who is that guy that snorts when I tell him I'm the hero of the Johnstown flood? Well, you know who that is. No. Well, that's, his name is Noah. <laughs> now, this is, this is a myth. Don't take this seriously. <laughs> it's really a myth. Anyway, all right, we'll take up the uh, background of Abraham now, and this is from under chapter, page 105, and, and the question is 159 at that point.
Maybe we'll go back later to some of this other material. Now, the first uh, three or four questions here deal with this uh, rather prosaic problem of the dating of the patriarchal period. And uh, Unger works this out, and uh, this is arithmetic rather than archaeology, based upon the statements in the Bible. And he figures out the uh, patriarchal period from the time Abraham entered Canaan to the time Jacob left Canaan is how many years? He gives you the references and how you prove it. But from the time Abraham entered Canaan to the time Jacob left Canaan to go to Egypt, Mr. Brown, 215 years. Does anybody want the proof of this uh, point by point? Or have you got it already? It's in your book. Abraham was 75 when he left Haran. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born. Jacob was 130 when he went and entered Egypt and stood before Pharaoh. So uh, you uh, take the 25 remaining years of Abraham up to the birth of Isaac, from the time he entered Canaan until Isaac was born, 25 years for Abraham, 60 years from the uh, birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob, and uh, 130 from the birth of Jacob to the time that uh, Jacob entered Egypt and stood before Pharaoh. That adds up to 215. And um, that's uh, 25, 60, and 130. <clears throat> and the Bible states that the total length of the sojourn of the Israelites in Egypt was 430 years. Now, I didn't bring my Bible today. I remember my thoughts this day. But this is in Exodus 12, 40 and 41. It even says it was the self-same day. 430 years. And another key, that's the time they spent in Egypt, according to the Bible. Another key date is 1 Kings 6.1. This is crucial for the establishment of the valid chronology of the Old Testament. This states in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that the exodus from Egypt under Moses was 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign, uh, about 967 or something like that. And um, this was the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and it states that this was exactly 480 years after the people of Israel had left Egypt. This makes it possible, give or take about 10 years, to pin down the date of the Exodus and all these other dates. This is still controversial and comes up later. There's a chapter here on the date of the Exodus, but this is just a preview of this here. Now, according to these figures, based on the Bible itself, Abraham was born in 2161 B.C., give or take a little bit. Entered Canaan 2086, or possibly uh, about six years different, 2092 B.C., and died about 1986 B.C., you see, the uh, earthly life of Jesus was almost exactly halfway between Abraham and us. And if Abraham was, uh, let's say, uh, he died in 1986 B.C., and here we are in 1971 A.D., the uh, birth and uh, life and crucifixion and ascension of Jesus are almost exactly the midpoint between those two. He lived as long after Abraham as uh, he lived before us. 
this world. All right, now then, um, leaving those somewhat technical little items, and you realize, of course, our eternal salvation doesn't depend on the arithmetic of these dates. However, since the Bible gives the information, it's worth our while to try to figure it out and also to try to answer objections that have been raised to it. This is not um, essential to being a Christian and going to heaven, surely not. But um, on the other hand, it's in the Bible for a purpose, and it helps us to substantiate the historical reliability of the Bible to be able to defend these dates. You know, there's three kinds of dates. As I've often explained classes. They're the kind you eat out of a package, the kind you spend a real nice evening on, and the kind you learn out of a book. And this is the third kind, not the nicest kind of the three by any means, but um, still they have some importance. Now then, uh, Abraham came from where? Mr. James, can you tell where Abraham came from? Ur the Chaldees. Now, that was originally only called Earth. And of the Chaldees, the name was forgotten later, see, and that when, when Moses wrote the book, it was considered necessary to put in of the Chaldees so that uh, they could identify the general location. This is a gloss, uh, presumably put in by Moses, just possibly by someone later, but this is not contrary to believe Moses wrote the book. There are a number of these in the writings of Moses where it gives the original name and then the name at the time of the writing of the book, of the place. Ur Kasdim in Hebrew. K-A-S-D-I-M. Ur Kasdim. Translated Ur the Chaldees. This place was um, uh, lost to the memory of man for ages. And uh, only rediscovered um, less than a hundred years ago. Uh, well, really in this present century, yes, less than a hundred years ago, about 75 years ago. Located on the lower Euphrates River, and uh, the scholars and geographers do not agree did the Persian Gulf come up about a hundred miles further inland then than it does now. Many maps have a dotted line showing the supposed ancient coastline of the Persian Gulf running about a hundred miles further inland than the present day coastline. The reason they say this is that no archaeological remains have been found in that last hundred miles. No pottery, no weapons, no tools, or nothing. No bones. On the other hand, this is disputed by other uh, geographers and archaeologists of equal eminence and reputation who say that's all nonsense. There's no evidence really here except the absence of archaeological artifacts. There's no evidence that the coastline in four thousand years ago was any substantial amount different from what it is today. So... There you are. When the experts don't agree, what are we common folks to do? And then uh, quake yourself with the issue and go on to the next point. However, there is evidence that um, in Abraham's day, there was a river port on the banks of the Euphrates River. And today, the ruins of Ur are seven miles from the banks of the river. All right. Uh, now then, uh, Mr. Thompson, how do you suppose the ruins of Ur got moved seven miles? Yeah, I think it's the, not the ruins that moved, but the river that moved. Does that seem a fair assumption? The ruins are still where they were. The river has moved, so there isn't uh, alongside of the ruins of there anymore. 
So if we would rebuild there today over the existing ruins, it would no longer be a river port. It would have an airport, but it wouldn't be a river port anymore. All right, now, uh, the political and cultural situation. I should point out, Leonard Woolley, not a believer in the infallibility of the Bible, he's dead now anyhow, but he held the late dating and held that uh, Abraham lived uh, about uh, one or two hundred years later than Unger's book hope. Puts him in a different dynasty. And according to Leonard Woolley, Ur had already passed its zenith and was slightly on the downgrade of its grandeur and glory by the time of Abraham. However, Woolley, who uh, takes the Bible more seriously than, uh, I mean, Unger, uh, who takes it more seriously than Woolley, puts the date of Abraham earlier in the third dynasty of Ur, and uh, it was the period of the height of the glory of the city of Ur. Third dynasty. Do you know they found gold jewelry there? Dated um, 2500 BC, but was vastly better than that that was dated 500 BC. They deteriorated, and this that was found at the very early period, beautiful, uh, marvelous in its craftsmanship, it would grace the window in Tiffany's jewelry store on Fifth Avenue, New York, or even Blocker's jewelry in Elwood City where they have a big velvet drape and they have just one diamond ring in the middle of it or something like that. But anyhow, um, beautiful work from that very early period and far superior to the work of a thousand and fifteen hundred years later. How do you explain that? They deteriorated instead of improving. So anyway, this was in Abraham's day the forefront and spearhead of culture and civilization and probably... Um, somewhat ahead of even the greatest in Egypt, or at least neck and neck with Egypt at this time, maybe even ahead of Egypt. The pyramids in Egypt were built in the 2600 B.C., the big ones, 2600 B.C., about 500 years before Abraham's day. It is quite possible that Abraham, who made a trip to Egypt and told some fibs about his wife, uh, saw the pyramids. If he did, they were already about 500 years old. And when Moses was in Egypt, the pyramids would be already more than a thousand years old. It's no wonder that Napoleon Bonaparte said in a speech to his soldiers, men, the ages are looking down upon you. Now, in spite of that, uh, the culture of Earth may have been a little bit ahead of that of Egypt. Anyhow, it was pretty high. What about the religion of Earth? Now, culturally, they were pretty good. They knew how to make things and do things. And they had a system of writing. So what was their religion? Well, uh, Mr. Johnson, can you say anything about the religion of Earth? Well, all right, who can say anything about it? What did they worship? Mr. Byrne. Worship the moon. Now, I've heard it said that... Uh, Come back to the end of May and beginning of June. This is the dominant religion on the Geneva campus. Moon worship. <laughs> well, anyhow, maybe that's not quite true. But anyway, uh, the worship of the moon and Nanar, the moon god, got more worship in Nur than all the other gods put together, I guess. And that big ziggurat that is found at the ruins of it, picture of in your book, in... Uh, 
early times like we're dealing with here had a temple on the top and in it uh, an idol of the moon god and this was dedicated to the moon god. They also had a moon god. They were sort of a married couple. Uh, Nana and Ninja, husband and wife. But anyway, uh, the priesthood of the temple of the moon god pretty nearly owned the city of Earth. Not quite, but they owned a good half of it in Islam. And archaeologists have found in, in the ruins there receipts for contributions to this temple. I don't know if they wanted to get the credit on their income tax or what, but the two sheep, three cheeses weighing nine pounds each, three jugs of oil, each holding so and so much, and so forth. And these receipts made out on little clay tablets, but in duplicate. Apparently the temple kept one and the donor got one. So I don't know why, but anyhow, it sounds very modern. Now, God called Abraham to depart from earth. And under question 175 here, raises the question, uh, why would God call Abraham to leave the city of earth? After all, this was the London and Paris of the day, not to mention the Beaver Falls and Pittsburgh. Paris of the day of the age. Why would he uh, want to leave there? Well, uh, let's see. Mr. Thompson, any ideas on that? Well, did you ever see a lifted movie on the TV? Or are you like me? You don't waste your time watching it. How would you like to raise a family in a town with 13 saloons and no church? Did they used to have that kind? You see them, I think, with largely just for stories today, that's a ghost town, but the town was 13, 13 barrooms and no church. Now, there were people who lived there. Would that be Mr. Dunwoods? Is that a good place to raise family? I would say the influences would be unfavorable. And the influence that area, you couldn't live there without being brainwashed by the moon god. Everything was tied in with this. You could hurry up the seat and buy a loaf of bread without uh, bowing your head to the moon god or something. And uh, the whole whole life of the city was just interlocked with this system of moon worship. Now the moon's all extra astronauts to fly to, you know, and everything, but the moon isn't any god. And this is idolatry, just as much as any other form of it. And it was accompanied, of course, by not only a theology, but a moral code that was of a pagan nature like that. And here is God calling a man to be the founder of the chosen people from whom the Savior of the world will finally come. Well, certainly early Chaldees was no place for him. Now, the Bible doesn't say why he was called away from there. But for this, you can read between the lines, Ur was uh, the height of human culture and yet wicked and idolatrous. And this would be bound to influence, if not Abraham himself, at least his descendants. Also, the Bible proves that at least part of the ancestors of Abraham themselves were idolaters. This is in the last chapter of Joshua, where Joshua is saying goodbye to the people of Israel, and he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites among whom you're now living, or the gods that your forefathers worshipped on the other side of the Euphrates. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The other side of the flood, he said. That means the Euphrates, undoubtedly. 
and were therefore at least part of the ancestors and family tree of Abraham had been idolaters and had undoubtedly worshipped the moon. That's where they lived. Now God gets them away from that place. Uh, has any archaeological evidence been found of, um, let's say, Abraham's existence there? Now, would you expect they would find some clay tablets or inscriptions telling about Abraham getting up to leave town? Well, I wonder, would you? Uh, from the standpoint of, of ourselves, from the standpoint of the Bible and Christianity, Abraham, of course, is a tremendously important figure. But if you had been the uh, local newspaper editor of Herb, they had one, would you have considered Abraham important? Well, a nomadic uh, Semite uh, who was a herdman and uh, left the place and moved away. So he would probably not be rated as important. The king of her would be. And if they fought some other king, he would be too. But the resident of this type, uh, he was a prosperous man. He wasn't poor. He was well-to-do, but... Uh, there was nothing about any reason why there should be any permanent record of this. You may be sure that he was not active in politics in the city of Earth. He couldn't have been without religious unfaithfulness. Therefore, um, this is not surprising that uh, he would not be... Uh, it was a large city with a large population and the departure of Abraham and his, his party would scarcely be noticed. All right, so who went with him? Shabay? His wife, who else? His father, Father Kira, his wife Sarai, later called Sarah, and his nephew Lot. And it doesn't mention Lot's wife at this point, not unless he got married later, because we do meet up with Lot's wife later. But anyhow, she got to talk to But anyway, <laughs> um, this small group, no doubt also some um, servants, slaves, or dependents went with him. Abraham was a rich man. Later we find him in Canaan, able at an, an instant's notice to raise an army of 318 men right out of his own little clan for an emergency situation. Therefore, it is estimated that in Canaan, the clan of Abraham numbered around a thousand. If you figure 318, those are just men of age to fight in a battle, and there would be older and younger people and women maybe between 700 and 1,000. Anyhow, <clears throat> where did Abraham go on leaving her then? Well, uh, he went, uh, we had a map here we could look at, up the Euphrates River, the direct route to Canaan. He didn't know for sure where he was going. God didn't tell him. This was part of where faith came in. God didn't tell him yet. Uh, Canaan, however, is directly west of where the Calvary, straight line west. A kind of a straight line a turnpike would take. But that route was impossible then and is almost impossible today. The driest desert in the world where even a camel can hardly survive. They have, um, well, there are cases of airplanes forced down over that area and before the passengers could be rescued, they died of thirst. Just in a few hours. Terribly, that my son, who was in the army, was in Saudi Arabia for a while, and he was at a, a place called Dar es. You know, it's a place on the east coast of Arabia, and they used to go with a convoy 
Korea, the capital. And the several cars and trucks are deep together, and never send one alone. And when they, they were supposed to arrive at a certain time, and they radioed on ahead to tell. And if they were two hours overdue, a relief convoy sent off in the opposite direction to try to find them. Assuming they were lost or something had happened, they had an accident or something. Now, the direct route from her to Canaan, straight west, was, was impossible. It is today, except for powerful motorized equipment and airplanes. And therefore, this they couldn't do. So they take the so-called fertile crescent route, they go up the Euphrates River to the point where it's nearest the coast and plus there, and then go down the coast into Canaan. However, they got detoured. They went up the Euphrates, so they came to a tributary of it in, in the northern part, uh, River Balik, I believe, and um, is the modern name of it. And they went up this tributary to a place called Haran, H-A-R-A-N. And there they settled and remained for a period of years, and nobody knows why. And strange to say, Haran also is, um, or was, there's a town still there, but the city was in Abraham's day, uh, another center of moon worship. But this was really different in a way. You see, it wasn't a big metropolis like Ur, and it wouldn't have the pressures that Ur would have. And Haran uh, was a small place out in the, in the back country. And it is supposed that maybe Tira, uh, the old father, either was feeling sick and weak and couldn't travel further, or maybe he took a dim view of all this journey so far from home and wasn't sold on it and just sort of declined to go any further. And so they stopped there and waited and uh, later got to, he died there, and later they got to going again and got into Palestine. Now, what country holds Palestine today? We got a student now who is a Palestinian Arab in, in Geneva. Came here on a scholarship program. All right, does Israel have it all? No question. Now, uh, <clears throat> before the war of 1967, it was divided between Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and Syria. And in the war of the summer of 1867, the so-called Six-Day War, in which the Israelis surprised the world by what they could do, they got control of nearly the whole of Palestine. Uh, all the parts west of the Jordan River. The far east of the Jordan River is still held by the Mohammedan Kingdom of Jordan. The Gaza Strip, southwest coast, where the Philistines lived and Samson for the shenanigans, this uh, they got from Egypt, and Israel holds it today, and they hold it clear up to the edge of the Suez Canal, plus the Sinai Peninsula, greatly to the annoyance of the Egyptians. Now then, um, this is today. The Republic of Israel, under the modern Jews, is extremely advanced in their technology and so forth, and they're working wonders of planting forests and reclaiming wasteland and uh, cultivating the soil with modern agriculture and modern scientific methods, and uh, working really amazing results with it. The Arabs, on the other hand, that, whose ancestors had lived there a thousand years, got pushed out, and some of them, since 1947, are still in concentration camps, living on a measly dole from the United Nations. Have a, I have to say I have some sympathy for the Palestinian Arab. Anyway, the country is vastly different from what it was in Abraham's day. 
the culture in Abraham's day wasn't the age of the death plane. The culture in Abraham's day, middle bronze age, 2500 BC. And a large part of Canaan or Palestine, west of the Jordan River, was forested, heavily forested, with evergreen trees. You realize that today, except for the ones recently planted by the Israelis, Palestine has been almost denuded of the trees. They cut them off down through the edges and didn't plant new ones. And the watershed ridge that goes like a spine, a backbone down the middle of the country, a little uh, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, a little bit to the west, to the east rather, it slopes steeply on the east side down to the Jordan and gently on the west side down to the Mediterranean. And this in Abraham's day was covered with a dense evergreen forest. Both sides. Hmm? Both sides. Both sides, but uh, the uh, one was rather steep going down the Jordan on the, on the east side. And uh, this was uh, not suited to agriculture. It was forest. They had game animals. They had real lions in there. They had wolves. They had hyenas. They had various kinds of snakes. The last record of a real lion, this isn't a wildcat or a lynx, but a real lion, complete with mane and tail, being killed in the Holy Land is about 700 B.C., 1,300 years after Abraham's death, if we put Abraham just at 2,000 for a round number. Now, the, the flatter land down toward the coast of the Mediterranean was sparsely settled by the Canaanites, or Amorites, these two terms used interchangeably, a collection of tribes. They were of Hamitic race and spoke a Semitic language. Anyway, they had cleaned up that part, and the uh, higher slopes were uninhabited and covered with this uh, evergreen forest. Now, um, when the watershed ridge gets senior to the trees, then they begin to have droughts and they begin to have floods. Water supplies fail. It will be greatly to the uh, economic advantage of the Republic of Israel when they finish this program of planting trees. This will greatly improve the and power the soil, the whole water, so that the streams don't go dry just when they need the water in the middle of summer. All right, uh, 181. I want to go too far here. How has archaeology confirmed the accuracy of the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis with regard to the places mentioned in the story? Um, we have not found the name of Abraham or... Um, Foundations of his house. His house is a tent. He wouldn't find foundations of it. But archaeology has shown something. Now, one of the things that stick in a country are place names. You realize that all over Pennsylvania there are place names that go back to the Indians that once held it. The Indians are gone forever. But the place names stick. Here is uh, the American Legion at Monaca. You see a sign out that says Monaca Tusa, post of the American Legion. He was an Indian chief. Manakatusa. That has nothing to do with the Italian language. It has nothing to do with Monaco. He was uh, an Indian. Conakonesi. Beaver, Mr. Bay. Um, Susquehanna. Uh, Juniata. These are all Indian names. And the Indians put those names on the place and those are going to stick there while the world remains. Now, uh, archaeology... The place is mentioned in the story of Genesis as visited or temporarily lived in by the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
have been shown to have been cities that people lived in during the time of those patriarchs and later abandoned. So that it fits the period, you see. And other places which later became important are not mentioned in the patriarchal narratives. So the names of the towns that it gives and the names of the places and so forth are those that were in use at the time when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob used and lived. And those that um, were founded later or the names were changed later, these are not found in the Genesis record. Now he mentions here in 185 the uh, five cities of the plain. These were at the lower end of the Dead Sea. If you think of the map of Palestine, there's the Jordan River, the strangest river in the world. It's below sea level almost its entire length. And ends up at the lowest spot on Earth, the Dead Sea, 1,290 feet approximately below sea level. That figure varies a few feet from here to here as the lake rises or falls. 1,275 to 1,290 below sea level. And the water of the Dead Sea, well, it's called dead because it has only input and no output, and the salts that are in the water remain there, and so it's getting a little saltier every day. Besides the underground vast deposits of rock salt that are underneath where they work up into the water, it is so salty that nothing can live in it. It's said that birds won't even fly over it if they can help. The whole place has got a kind of a greasy jet appearance. But anyway, um, the water at the northern end of the Dead Sea is over a thousand feet deep. You see, the surface is 1,200 below sea level, and the water is another thousand feet deep below that. And the southern end of the Dead Sea, there's a little peninsula called the Tongue or the Leaf Pan or Leaf Pan that juts out about three quarters of the way down, two thirds of the way down. That goes halfway across and leaves a little narrow break for the water. And the part south of that is only 12 to 20 feet deep instead of a thousand feet. That's a terrific difference. And it is believed that in Abraham's day, the part south of that was still dry land, or at most a little swampy. And that, uh, that is where these five cities were. Uh, Adma, Zeboim, Zoar, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said you could see the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah in his day in the shallow water at the southern end of the Dead Sea. Archaeologists have poked around there and haven't found it. Scuba divers haven't found it. They did find, however, that this where this peninsula almost cuts across, that underwater, the rest of the way across, is a, a seawall or a barrier that probably at one time was a dam to keep the sea to the north of that and keep the land dry to the south of it. This itself is underwater today. And if we can just get enough stable peace in the Holy Land that they will put this that's the habit of using archaeologists for target practice. Right, and maybe we can find out what's really down there. But uh, probably there's too much evidence that Sodom and Gomorrah were real places for anybody to doubt them. And the ruins have never been found anywhere else. And the uniform tradition is that they were at what is now under the water, the shallow water of the southern end of the Dead Sea. Now, the evidence indicates this is 186 here. About the middle of the 21st century B.C., this would be the time of Abraham, of course, and when Lot, his nephew, was living there. The cities were destroyed by a great conflagration. The region is described as being full of slime pits. This is asphalt or bitumen deposits. It's the pitch. It's white, gooey, roofing cement. 
This was greatly in demand in Babylonia. They used it as a bond between bricks. In Egypt, they used mortar made out of lime. But in Babylonia, they used the cumin or pitch, asphalt, as a bond. It was, if you didn't get stiff, it would stay a little bit springy and give a little bit to so change the temperature. And so it made a good sort of rubbery bond between bricks. All right, then. This is where uh, this conservation took place. Hold it just a minute. Dr. Melvin Rose Kyle, one time professor of the United Christian Seminary in Pittsburgh, a senior seminary, Pittsburgh, was a pioneer archaeologist in this area. And he wrote a book about it, which we have in the library. He said, the whole place to this very day gives the appearance of having been burnt out and scorched. The whole place, lots of places, nothing will grow. It has a sort of a scorched appearance like we would have where there's been a big fire. And uh, he held that um, underground gas deposits blew up and went through deposits of sulfur, uh, brimstone, and rock salt and melted them and set them afire and blew them sky high in a molten condition and on fire. And then this fell down again on these cities, which is what is described in the Bible, when the Lord named fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, see you later.